So this question is exactly why I really tried to avoid this episode at all costs and talking about Qatar and the World Cup. Um, because I didn't want to call anybody out, but this is what it's come to and we have to talk about it because we have to air dirty laundry. My name's Adela Kochav. And my name is Mariam Waba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is an Americanish Conversation. Welcome back to Americanish. This week, we're talking about Qatar and the World Cup. Before we get started, I have to introduce our wonderful guest, David Devani. David is a law student, former professional classical musician, a pasta connoisseur, and our favorite soccer expert. To top it off, David is very much Americanish, being half Italian and half Iranian. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, excited to talk about some soccer with you guys. Hell yeah. Our story begins in 2010 when it was announced that the 2022 World Cup bid was won by the small Gulf country, beating out much bigger countries, including the U.S. and Japan. There were rumors of bribery and much controversy, but we're not talking about that today. Qatar, with a mere 1.7 million population, became destined to be the first Middle Eastern country to host a World Cup. This quadrilineal event has national soccer teams compete tournament style for the title of world champion. Construction began in 2015 with seven completely new stadiums and an infrastructure to support transportation between hotels, arenas, and other hotspots, recruiting hundreds of thousands of migrant workers from some of the poorest countries in the world. In 2022, data from India, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka revealed that there were 5,927 deaths of migrant workers starting in 2011 in Qatar. In addition, there were reports of slavery, as some workers were not paid. There were also reports of unsafe working conditions, and some even charged workers to change jobs. Since the start of the tournament on November 18th, there have been reports about LGBTQ fans being arrested and pride flags have officially been banned. There have also been reports that the Qatar paid the Taliban to rent equipment to build the stadiums. Qatar security has arrested fans that waved the Iranian flag in solidarity with the revolution happening right now in Iran, while other fans have shown their support for the Islamic regime. All of this to say... Everything is a mess and chaos is all around. Guys, where should we start? All right. So first off, let's get it out of the way. I cannot talk. I have a horrible, horrible cold. And then I went clubbing and then I went to an airplane and now I have no voice. So once we got that out of the way, uh, second, let's get out of the way the fact that I don't know much about sports. That's why David is here. And I don't know that much about the Middle East, which is why Mariam is going to share her wisdom with me today. But the one thing I really do know a lot of is school spirit. And the World Cup is school spirit on steroids. Yeah. And uh, we should also point out that uh, we've got school spirit together. We are both uh, students at the Cardozo School of Law. So let's just uh, throw that out there because we love our school, don't we? That is correct. We do love our school. And David can attest to the fact that I am the school spirit queen. And never yes. do I feel more Mexican than during the World Cup. I put on that jersey and I become Madam Mexico. I watch the games. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm so happy to root on for Mexico. And luckily, I have multiple allegiances. So if Mexico doesn't make it through, I've got Canada and if Canada doesn't make it through, I've got all the countries that my cousins live in. So I've basically got the whole map covered. David, you're you're a ton of things. You're Americanish, but what country do you root for when it comes to the World Cup? 
Yeah. So it's kind of hard because, you know, I grew up in the United States, but I have been uh, an Italy supporter for my entire life. My first soccer jersey that I ever got was one uh, of Alessandro De Piero uh, with his Italy jersey. Uh, so for me, I'm a ravenous Italy supporter um, all around, uh, not just in soccer. I love Italy It's and everything about it. And I was very excited to watch them win the Euro Cup two years ago. And you know, irrationally, I can hold that hope that they win this World's Cup, even though they're not there. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I love that. I love that. How very diasporic of you. So <laughs> soccer to me, clearly, it's, it's not just a sport. It's, it's this great unifier, right? It brings so many people together. And it's a little bit hard for people in the U.S. who don't have an international background to realize that this is the equivalent of the Super Bowl, but it's to the world. So how, how do you explain this to someone who grew up with a soccer as a side sport mentality? Yeah. So, I mean, my dad uh, immigrated to the United States from Iran in the 70s and around the world, everywhere you go, you see children that have uh, a soccer ball at their feet uh, from very little. Uh, and, you know, they get out of school uh, at the end of the day and they would just play and play and play until their parents called them in for dinner. And so that is their life from very young and people not just during world cup time or euro cup time but you've got the national leagues uh the premier league one of the most popular leagues in the world in england or Serie A in italy or la liga in spain uh and people will just uh ravenously uh watch this game uh week in and week out and so when their team is uh, the winner of this, when they are the best in the world, it means so much to them. And so just an anecdote, uh, as an example, a good friend of mine is half German, half Italian uh, in 2018, uh, 2014, sorry, when uh, Germany won the World Cup, he was getting off a plane in Germany. And, you know, when you go to Germany, it's not really one of those places that's known for being uh, overtly patriotic. Uh, but they just <laughs> found out that Germany won uh and he was getting off the plane. The pilot climbs onto the top of the plane and starts waving a German <laughs> flag. And so you just, you have to know what this means to uh, people around the world. It's a huge, huge thing. So I love that because it unifies people of the diaspora outside of their country. It unifies people within their country to feel some pride. And, you know, it also like brings different countries together. I remember um, last World Cup in um, here in New York when Korea won a match which gave Mexico a better setup for the next round. American Mexicans or Mexicans in America just crowded Koreatown and started chanting, Coreano hermano ya eres mexicano, which means my Korean brother, you are now Mexican. And in Mexico, people went to like the <laughs> Korean embassy and started lifting embassy staff on their shoulders chanting. <laughs> and they were so happy. I've never felt so united. My brother and my sisters and I actually went to Koreatown and we ate at a Korean restaurant and it was full of Mexican people, which... <laughs> may not have ever eaten Korean food in their life. But in that moment, I never felt more united. Um, so it is this wonderful, wonderful unifier, but it's also been used for much more. So Mariam, you coming from the Middle East, what is soccer like in the Middle East? Um, wow. Okay. None of my stories were that fun, but I feel like now I have to fun it up. Soccer in the Middle East <laughs> is all consuming. Um, if you were, you were playing with a soccer ball or whatever you can find that resembled a soccer ball after school, if you were a, bo a young boy, I remember my cousins would like 
take all the leftover socks or like, you know, the single socks that didn't have the other one attached to it and they'd roll them up into each other. And if you had like 10 or so socks, you had a thing that resembled a soccer ball and you tossed it around until you could afford a soccer ball. Um, so when we say it is all consuming, it really is all consuming it, it from babies to grown men watching soccer and playing soccer. It's really part of the culture and part of people's identity. Um, but I want us to understand what soccer means and the intersection of soccer and politics in the Near East, in the Middle East. Um, and while it's a second or even third rate sport, as David uh, alerted me in prep for this episode in the U.S., soccer is the most popular sport around the world, especially mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And to fully understand the weight of that um, and how much it intersects in everyday life, I want us to take a look uh, at the Arab Spring. Um, hardcore fans or ultra fans, as they call them, um, have always had an antagonistic culture and have been deeply anti-authority and um, were known to be in constant conflict with the police and the news media. Uh, Egyptian ultra fans played a key role in the 2011 Arab Spring in Tahrir Square and even helped topple Hosni Mubarak as president. That's what that's the weight of the sport. The ultra fans helped topple a dictator. Uh, they were then banned by Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who came after um, after uh, Hosni Mubarak and um, Morsi. And this wasn't the first time that fans were banned from like showing their fandom. There have been multiple times in Arab and Tunisian and Moroccan history where there have been no fans allowed in stadiums because of how crazy it would get. Um, stadium chants and slogans were awfully, often deeply political. Um, and they were a microcosm. Soccer games were a microcosm for uh, the tensions that were about to happen in the respective country. I remember in college, uh, senior year, one of my peers wrote her college thesis on the role that soccer played in politics in the Near East. Um, and you can kind of predict when an uprising was going to happen based on what was happening in the stadium. Isn't that fascinating? Like, a sport, a, a ball and a couple of guys tossing it around can predict which country is going to experience hostility and instability. Yeah. And, you know, if you were ever worried about uh, stability in the United States, you can just look at how boring uh, Major League Soccer games are. And you can and you can see we have that nothing to worry just, about. We're in the clear. That's so funny. That's so funny. So, um, you know, talking about the, the U.S. team, when it comes to U.S. national unity, um, how is the U.S. soccer culture? You, you, you just say it's boring. Is it boring? Well, you know, it's, it's not the league. Actually, the domestic league here, Major League Soccer, has uh, gotten has gone from being very sleepy, um, bad games to, you know, it's starting to get a lot more um, traction. It's getting uh, a lot uh, more interest and the games are starting to get uh, pretty good. You actually, uh, there's a stadium that's now being dedicated to soccer being built in Queens right by uh, City Field and the the renderings for that look incredible. Um, so, you know, soccer culture is starting to take hold, I think, in the United States. And, you know, what's really nice to see about the World Cup, uh, especially uh, as an American citizen, when you see how uh, divided the country is on politics, on pretty much everything. You see people just getting together, regardless of political views, regardless of what team they support, regardless of what sport they like, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, and they can just like with a 
jingoistic sense of like real uh, fury support that national team uh, against especially uh, a familiar adversary for the United States, England. And they, and they really uh, showed up uh, in that game the other day and they, they, they proved that they, the national team is going to be a force on the national stage. We're a little bit far away from that right now. I think Mm -hmm. that what needs to happen is like what Mariam was discussing. Um, You need to have children like really like living and breathing this game. And you see uh, people, uh, for example, one person that comes to mind is Kyle Martino. He was a former U.S. men's national team player. He commentated for NBC for a while. He actually has a few organizations that are dedicated to uh, soccer outreach uh, for children, especially in urban areas. And he's been doing a phenomenal job with that. So you're going to start to see as children like really like start to live and breathe this game. Um, it's going to be really good. But I mean, the United States, I mean, I've been a heavy skeptic um, period of the United States national team. But and I was thinking that they were going to go into that England game and get, receive a really big beating. But they really impressed me. They they played a really mature game and they made everyone really proud, even though it was a draw. I have to say the best part about the game, aside from the fact that the U.S. played really well, was the memes that were coming out of it. Did you see how people were like, oh, like England v. U.S., like Whitner gets Canada? I was like, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's definitely been funny. So I, I do think that, you know, the whole idea of a, a soccer team, a national soccer team, can strengthen nationalism and patriotism here in the U.S., but, you know, every country has a team. So let's talk about the Iranian national team. Yeah, so this is a little bit uh, of a stranger situation because you've got a team that the Federation, the Iranian Football Federation, is there's nothing that isn't affiliated with the Islamic government there. So it's a it's a difficult situation for Iranian fans, both in Iran and in the diaspora. So you've got sort of two sets of fans. There's the fans that want to support Iran and see it as a representation of their cultural heritage, the beautiful history that the country has had for thousands of years. And that's that's one view. And then there's the other view of people who just don't want to support the team, regardless of if they don't sing the national anthem, regardless of if there are players protesting the government overtly. It's still affiliated with the government and supporting that team is supportive of the government. And actually, I have family over there that we heard from that uh, said that when England beat Iran 6-2, there were people pouring into the streets in Iran celebrating uh, England's win uh, over the national team. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult because there are people there that just want to enjoy the game and you've got that political element to it that's, uh, that's harming it. <laughs> I, so I have a question for you, David. There's There's been two sides of this coin and I don't want to hang on here too long. It's just really fascinating. Um, so there's been people that have been not supporting the team actively, but there have there's people that are very actively supporting the Iranian team because they don't necessarily see it as a reflection of the mm-hmm. Iranian regime. What yeah. do we make of that? I mean, I think that that's it's okay either way because I mean it's the beautiful game. You want to support uh, who you want to support, and if you have a sense of national identity with uh, Iran and its history, then you're going to want to support, uh, you're going to want to see the team do well, because I mean, that is a situation, uh, where it's your sport, your country, 
and we're not going to let uh, this government that doesn't represent how we feel about the world represent us. Hmm. I think that's a really good point. I think that, you know, either take when it comes to the Iranian national team, either people that want to support their their culture and the sense of a greater identity um, are are in the right. And it's also completely right to to see it as an extension of the government and to take a stand against that. I think that both both of them are valid points of view. And it just goes to show how much, you know, internal political sentiment can play a role when it comes to the World Cup and even supporting your team, whether or not you support it. Uh, but I want to take a pivot to the fact that this is the very first World Cup hosted in any Middle Eastern country. And because it's the first Middle Eastern World Cup, there's been a lot of media coverage around this. So what has the media here in the West been saying about the World Cup in Qatar? Yeah, so it's a bit of a split. I mean, you would see a bit of a difference between the sports media and the general, let's say, uh, mainstream uh, news aggregators. Um, the sports media have been very careful, I think, about what they say because they want to focus on the game. And they're also over there, so they don't want to cause any trouble, I don't think. Mm. And then on the other hand, you've got uh, media around the world talking about uh, everything that you discussed in the intro, all of the um, the migrant workers, the human rights issues and everything. So it's a lot of noise that's happening um, in the general media because they're not going to be talking about the sport necessarily. They're going to be talking about uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, what's going on. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that if you stopped anyone in the general New York metro area, which is where I am based, where the three of us are based, um, yep. just World Cup Qatar, the first thing that comes to mind is human rights abuses. So at least like that has been very much central to the coverage around the fact a World Cup is being hosted in Qatar. And I, I've also been seeing a lot of coverage about LGBTQ fans and discrimination. I, I've seen it all over TikTok. Um, but what, what have you guys seen around that issue? couple of things. Uh, it seems like the uh, pride flag has been banned. Um, I've seen a couple reports of LGBTQ plus fans uh, being arrested. Um, I know there was something about uh, two teams. Maybe, David, you can jump in on here and tell us a little bit more. I wanted to wear a One Love armband. What was that about? Yeah, so... England and Germany, I think, wanted to wear this bag that, badge that was supporting. It's a, it's an armband. It's a captain's armband that was uh, supportive of uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, you know, in England, uh, in the Premier League, they have a lot of initiatives that uh, are supportive of, like, no room for racism. And um, we, inc we include everyone in the sport. This is a sport for everyone. And so they really wanted to... Uh, bring that uh, to their game. And so there was a bit of controversy around that because the FIFA had their own set of armbands that they wanted uh, the captains to wear in those games. And they basically said to England and Germany, no, you're not wearing this. And if you do this, we're going to yellow card you on the spot when you do. And so they were worried about this um, so they didn't do it because yellow card accumulation is a little difficult because if you if you get a yellow card in one game and then you get a yellow card in the next game or in a game after that, you'll be banned for the subsequent game. So they don't want their star players to uh, risk that uh, situation. So, uh, you know, they they did their um, their own ways of showing support for LGBTQ people. Um, 
the Germany team uh, before the game uh, covered their mouths in the team picture. Uh, and right before kickoff, uh, the England team, uh, this was against Iran, the England team, uh, all took a knee in solidarity with uh, that situation. The, the other anecdote I want to share about the LGBT issue, and I do want to point out that I'm a strong believer in right time, right place for things. And if you ask me, do you think the FIFA World Cup is the place to advocate for LGBTQ plus rights? My answer is no, but I do think it's important to discuss this point. Um, one, a reporter or somebody wearing a uh, the pride colors on a shirt got turned away from one of the games and he tweeted about it and got a couple thousand retweets. And then a Qatari official uh, retweeted him with quote retweet and said, as a Qatari, I'm happy this happened. Western ideals are not universal ideals. And he was basically saying that just because the West believes in rights for LGBTQ folks doesn't mean the rest of the world has to, has to do the same. Um, and I find that really interesting because it's things like Westerners going raw, raw cultural relativism that allows people to do things like that. If we as the West, and I'm going to group myself with the West here, are like, you know, it's okay. People have different cultures. It's okay. They beat women in different cultures or they don't allow people to be who they are in different cultures. And we just have to accept that because it's cultural relativism. You lend yourself to shit like that happening. You open yourself mm. up to other people claiming basic human rights It are not their universal rights, are not the things that they want to abide by. So I just wanted to put that out there because it was a thing that was really happening on Twitter. And I think the West is reckoning with its own sins in that moment. Um, yeah, I think, and- I think we talked about this in a, in a past episode. We said, you know, in the West, we kind of backed ourselves into a corner saying we have to be acceptance of all views and we have to accept all views and respect all views. But sometimes views are outright bad. Sometimes views are outright dangerous and discriminatory mm-hmm. and keep people in a state of subjugation. If your view is that women are subhuman or that LGBTQ people don't have a right to exist as LGBTQ people, maybe your view is just wrong. And, um, you know, we're going to loop back into this because I think that this is a a bigger conversation that we can have, especially in this context of the World Cup. But um, first, I want to turn back to to Mariam when it comes to Qatar and being a refuge for for Islamists, uh, unlike its Gulf neighbors. Yeah, um, you got you got hit the nail on the head. Qatar is uh, or Qatar is a particularly interesting country in the region because um, it's not particularly a friendly country, but it's neither an enemy country. Um, and the U.S. has bases there. Um, I believe it actually has the largest base in the region in Qatar. Um, but Qatar has been known to be a refugee for Islamists. And unlike its Gulf neighbors, it's very sympathetic to political Islam. It's also the state sponsor behind Al Jazeera, a very pl- problematic news outlet, a very anti-West news outlet. Um, on top of all this, Qatar openly supports and provides a base for multiple terrorist organizations, including Hamas. Um So Qatar is really a country of particular interest to me as somebody who studies the region, works in the region, because it's very telling of of, um, where the region's at. And Mm. um, it's interesting to look at it in different moments in history. Um, And this particularly is going to be 
an important time to reflect on in 10, 5, 1 year about where Qatar was or what Qatar was doing when it had all eyes of the world on it as this world like soccer tournament continues. I think that's really important. I think that's really important. So, you know, looking at the way the Western media has been portraying the World Cup in Qatar as a human rights abuse, turning down LGBTQ people. They have been highlighting a lot of the problematic things that have to do with Qatar. How have Arabs in the diaspora been responding to this? (laughs) So this question is exactly why I really tried to avoid this episode at all costs and talking about Qatar and the World Cup. Um, because I didn't want to call anybody out, but this is what it's come to, and we have to talk about it because we have to air dirty laundry. Um, In the past couple of days, diaspora Arabs, meaning Arabs in the West, are coming out against the Western media coverage of Qatar. Um, There was one TikTok video that especially infuriated me, and um, a TikTok star, and half Palestinian, half Filipino TikTok star said, And I quote, the only reason white people have so much to say about Qatar hosting the World Cup is because of white supremacy. It is because the country is Arabi and Muslim that all of a sudden all these white people are advocates for ethics and morality. He goes on to say that just because something is acceptable in the West doesn't mean it's acceptable elsewhere and neither should it be. Um... I am vehemently against this sentiment. I I really cannot resent it enough. I I really don't think the Western coverage of Qatar has anything to do with white supremacy. I don't think it's because it's the country's Arabi and Muslim that all of these sudden, to use his words, white people care about ethics and morality. Um, Arabs will cry about how the West violates human rights basic human rights, and then turn around and call the same basic human rights Western ideology. We have to cut that shit out. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You cannot go around and say how you value Western ideals and live in the U.S. and reap the benefits of liberal democracy. And then when we we as the West critique other countries for not having it, you're like, no, 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 not you. You can't do that. It's it's really infuriating and it really does nothing but harms our communities. We need to we need to move past this. Yeah, you know, and I think that something that undermines that argument a little bit more is that this isn't the first World Cup with controversy surrounding it. You, you've you had uh, Russia in 2018 uh, had a ton of controversy surrounding it. Obviously, uh, nobody's a big fan of Russia at the moment. And so it's it just goes to show that uh, the situation is not based off of what where in the world they are. I mean, the 2018 World Cup had human rights violations, it had corruption allegations, it had doping allegations. And, you know, Russia never, to my knowledge, has held itself out as an Eastern country. So it doesn't doesn't really hold up here. It doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I think, Mariam, the way that you put it earlier was that you can't pick and choose when you stand for freedom and liberty and justice and rights, depending on what country you're basing it on. You can't have your soccer-shaped cake and eat it too. <laughs> That's funny. Um. But yeah, I think that this this is an ongoing story, right? Yeah, and and we said in the beginning we're we're not going to get into all of it. We can't get into all of it, or else we'd be like a six-hour podcast. But this was an introduction. Um, I hope we gave everybody like a solid 
background of what this conversation is like and what's happening. And I hope you amongst your friends and peers are having similar ones. Um, And this is an ongoing story that will continue to follow. And if more interesting things happen, which I am sure they will, um, Mm. we'd love to to talk about it more. And this is... um, I don't know how to admit this, but I kind of enjoy talking about soccer. <laughs> David, you did yeah. it. Yeah, that, you that, did it. That was always the goal. I just wanted to have a reason to talk about soccer with you. <laughs> Look, I think that, you know, soccer, like I said, I've never been a sport person, but I always become a sport person during the World Cup. And it's something that we've all enjoyed together as countries, as individuals, as diaspora members. It really was a great unifier. And it's it's really unfortunate that something we did enjoy in that way has been tainted by controversy. I think that there's nothing wrong with enjoying the World Cup. I know a lot of people who are in Qatar right now, a lot of people who love to enjoy the World Cup. And, you know, everyone's turning back and saying, you know, there was slave labor, there have been human rights violations, the ongoing treatment of people in the stadium and outside of the stadium has been subpar with the values that we should hold ourselves to as a global country. But at the same time, you know, it it is this great unifier. Yeah. And you know, the people who are the ones who suffer the most for this are the fans and, you know, the players and the staff who are the ones who put so much time and effort and excitement into this one Mm -hmm. moment every four years that means so much to them. So, I mean, they work so hard and they just want to play the game and really show off uh, why they're great. And uh, it gets drowned out a little bit because there's so much noise and that's a really sad thing. Yeah, it's and, a really sad thing. I mean, and, I'm, I'm going to put on my Mexico jersey, um, you know, in their next game and I'm still going to be cheering on my team that's out there in Qatar. So uh, at least I'm still going to be partaking in this school spirit situation. And it's probably going to be Mexico's last game. We'll see. Stop. Uh, Stop. So sorry. No. So sorry. Wow. So sorry for what <laughs> laundry. After Mexico lost to Argentina, David, who is my friend, posted <laughs> Messi on his story. So I'm just saying the World Cup also shows you who your real friends are. <laughs> <laughs> my real friend is the greatest player of all time. He doesn't know who I am. But no. he produced some magic against Mexico, and I'm sorry that you had to be the collateral damage of his greatness. Boo. Boo. I, have a, I have a very cute picture to post on Instagram, and I can't post it anymore. So who really is the loser here? Um, on that wonderful note, again, this is a developing story. Hopefully, uh, we won't have too much to update you on, but if there are updates, you will catch it here. Once again, we are The Americanist Show. This is our guest, David Davani, and we're here every Tuesday. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thanks for having me.